Why are more and more species listed as endangered every single year? I'm Valentina and welcome to My Life Without Plastic. Hello, hello, my eco fam. <laughs> welcome back to another beautiful day in My Life Without Plastic to another beautiful day in my journey. <laughs> Today, I actually wanted to talk to you about some upcoming eco-holidays this week. On May 20th, we're actually celebrating World Bee Day, and on the 21st, it's Endangered Species Day. So I really think that these two days are just so significant in the environmental community. Usually we tend to focus on Earth Day and Plastic Free July and bigger events like that. But I really think it's actually pretty cool that we have those days where we can stop for a moment and recognize the damage we have done in the animal kingdom. I think it's super important to, you know, have some time to do some deep self-reflection. Um, this is why I always stress that all of our actions have consequences. Regardless of how good or bad we perceive those actions to be, they all have consequences. So it's important that instead of jumping from trend to trend, we actually stop and self-reflect. So I think that those two upcoming holidays are really the perfect opportunity for us to do that. But because there was so much information that I wanted to squeeze in, I really think that it wouldn't be fair to try and put it all together in one episode. So we're going to be talking about this topic for the next two episodes. Today we're going to cover endangered species and next week we're going to talk about the bees. <laughs> so what are we going to exactly dive into today? Well, we're going to touch base on what exactly makes species considered endangered and which species are actually essential to our survival on this planet. Also, I really wanted to point out some local news. I live in Miami, so I definitely feel like I have to bring attention to some very terrible things happening here right now. And definitely stay tuned, stay tuned for that case study in a little bit. Um, but you know, I feel like maybe these next two episodes could motivate you guys to maybe ditch the plastic bag or maybe ditch the plastic straw in favor of uh, helping preserve some of our endangered species. So let's see. Let's see if that's really going to be the outcome of it. But like I mentioned, I did do so much research that I wanted to share with you about a lot of different aspects of this topic. So let's jump right into it and not lose any more time. Before we get into the nitty gritty, let's first take a look at what exactly means when a species is endangered. Well, an endangered species is a type of organism that is threatened by extinction. Species become endangered for two main reasons, loss of habitat and loss of genetic variation. And we're going to focus on loss of habitat since this is pretty much the one closer related to the environmental impact. A loss of habitat can definitely happen naturally. The dinosaurs, for example, lost their habitat about 65 million years ago. 
And obviously the hot, dry climate of their period changed very quickly and drastically, most likely because of an asteroid striking the Earth. And the impact of that asteroid forced debris into the atmosphere, reducing the amount of heat and light that reached Earth's surface. The dinosaurs were unable to adapt to the new, cooler habitat, and obviously they became endangered and then extinct. Human activity can also contribute to a loss of habitat. Development for housing, industry, and agriculture reduces the habitat of native organisms. This can happen in a number of different ways. Loss of habitat may happen as development takes place in a species range, for example. Many animals have a range of hundreds of square kilometers or miles, you know, for my listeners here in the United States, Urban areas like Los Angeles, you know, different other areas in California, Vancouver, British Columbia, um, in, in Canada as well. So a lot of those urban areas grew rapidly during the 20th century. And obviously, as these areas expand into the wilderness, some animals, uh, some of the animal habitats definitely became much smaller, right? Like whenever urban land expands, it takes a toll on the actual wilderness. All right, so how do we know when species become endangered? Well, there's this thing called the International Union for Conservation of Nature, (laughs) and they keep a red list of threatened species. The red list defines the severity and specific causes of a species threat of extinction. The Red List has seven levels of conservation. It starts from least concern, near threatened, vulnerable, endangered, critically endangered, extinct in the wild, and finally extinct. Each category represents obviously a different threat level. And we're not going to go into, you know, too much detail for each level because I think that for the most part, you can pretty much imagine what exactly they all mean just from hearing their names. But basically, species that are not threatened by extinction are placed within the first two categories, least concerned and near threatened. Those that are most threatened are placed within the next three categories, known as the threatened categories, so vulnerable, endangered, and critically endangered. And then after that, those species that are extinct in some form are placed within the last two categories, extinct in the wild and extinct. Classifying a species as endangered has to do with its range and habitat, as well as its actual population. For this reason, a species can be of least concern in one area and endangered in another. The gray whale is a very good example for that. Um, The gray whale has a healthy population in the eastern Pacific Ocean along the coast of North and South America, but the population in the western Pacific is critically endangered. So you can see how the same species can be uh, classified into different categories. And I also wanted to point out that You know, the news is not always bad. When we put in enough effort, we can over time stop and completely revert the extinction of animals. So we, before we dive into the problems and negative aspects of this topic, I really did want to point this out because I think that, you know, this topic can get pretty heavy. Just thinking about us as humans and 
what we can do directly to be responsible for the extinction of entire species. I think that, you know, that's pretty terrible, obviously. And I do want you guys to keep in mind that as we continue with this episode, that we can actually prevent all of this from happening. So I'm going to, before we start with the negative consequences, I'm going to point out some animals that actually made it out of the endangered list. And we're going to start with the southern white um, rhinoceros. The southern white rhino is the second largest land mammal on earth, living for the most part in South Africa, Namibia, Zimbabwe, and Kenya. These beautiful beasts were thought to be extinct in the late 19th century. But in 1895, a tiny population of less than 100 rhinos was discovered in South Africa. A century of conservation and anti-poaching efforts later, between 19,000 and 21,000 southern white rhinos now live in protected areas and private game reserves, making this the only rhino species not endangered. So a big win there, right? The giant panda... Another very common animal that we talk about when we talk about endangered species. Well, the giant panda is a common symbol of conservation for over 50 years. And it's also the inspiration behind the Worldwide Fund for Nature logo. <laughs> I, I'm sure that's very famous as well. In 2016, the giant panda was officially downgraded from endangered to vulnerable. Forest protection and reforestation measures in China are the reasons behind this positive change, resulting in over 2,000 giant pandas now living wild in protected reserves across China. An another animal that um, we saw pretty much thrive, uh, the Arabian oryx. In the early 1970s, the antelope species, known as the Arabian unicorn, was thought extinct, lost forever, at the hands of poachers. But in a bit of change, um, you know, a change of faith, a team called Operation Oryx was set up to try and bring the species back from the brink, capturing the last remaining few animals and breeding them in captivity. The oryx was slowly released back into the wild in 1982. Today, the species is categorized as vulnerable on the endangered species list, with over 1,220 roaming wild across the Arabian Peninsula, plus another 6 to 7,000 in semi-captivity. I think that's pretty incredible. And two more animals really quickly to mention here, um, the gray wolf is a great animal to keep in mind. The gray wolf first received protection from the ESA. ESA stands for Endangered Species Act that we're going to talk about in a bit. So the ESA um, has been protecting the gray wolf since the 1970s after population numbers dwindled due to lack of prey and conflicts with farmers and ranchers. And in the years since the numbers have steadily climbed, and today, it's estimated that more than 5,600 gray wolves live wild in the U.S. However, recent announcements to delist them completely from the EDA um, means hunting could soon be resumed and numbers once again threatened. Of course, as long as animals are on the list, they have greater protection uh, by law. And the hope is that when we manage to get them off the list, humans 
want to behave like savages and just hunt them all down for the sake of some sport, you know? Um, so that's where we stay, stand with the gray wolf. And lastly, uh, the last example I wanted to give you guys, Louisiana black bear. There are over 16 subspe subspecies of American black bear with the Louisiana bear found, of course, only in Louisiana. Declared endangered in 1992 through loss of habitat to agricultural development, the past 17 years have seen over 700 acres of habitat restored in an effort to save the subspecies. The result? The bears were delisted in 2016, and today between 500 and 750 now exist in the wild. <laughs> so I really wanted to start this episode with some good news. I think that this topic deserves a positive outlook before we dive deep into, you know, all of those consequences that we as humans have caused. <laughs> but I think it's really important to keep in mind what immense impact our efforts can have in restoring um, animals' habitats, in restoring animals' population. But I also do want to, you to keep in mind that it can take generations and usually does take multiple generations to stabilize animals uh, population specifically when we are the ones responsible for their endangerment and on the flip side you know it's extremely easy to get animals to an extin extinction point so yes while our efforts do pay off they do take time and perseverance it's definitely not an easy act. So this should definitely not be, uh, you know, justification to say, oh, whatever, like, we're, we can always do something after the fact. No, like, this is definitely something that I want to show you guys that we can stop and revert extinction with a lot of effort that takes, you know, generations, decades, and sometimes even centuries to achieve a result. Um, and it's so much easier to do the opposite and to completely screw it up. So by now you may be wondering, how do we regulate and make sure that species actually are listed on the red list um, and that the animals listed there, the species listed there are actually being kept safe? Well, I wanted to introduce you to the Endangered Species Act that I just briefly mentioned. Um, and please keep this one in mind because it will come up throughout this episode with some controversial um, opinions about it. But just a general overview about the Endangered Species Act. It is considered to be the strongest law for protecting biodiversity passed by any nation. Its purpose is to prevent the extinction of our most at-risk plants and animals. So that's important to keep in mind. We're not only talking about animals here. Sometimes when we talk about endangered species, we only think about the great panda and we only think about cute animals going extinct, which obviously is more emotional for us to comprehend and to support there's more resistance uh, for us to support something like that. And it's more likely that we take actions. But plants are also endangered. And having plants go extinct, different plant species go extinct, can be equally or sometimes even more dangerous. So it's very important to keep that in mind. Endangered Species Act protects 
both animals and plants, increase their numbers and affect um, their full recovery, and eventually their removal from the endangered list. So it kind of goes full circle from helping them, you know, be protected, uh, preserved, recover, and eventually be removed from the endangered list. Currently, the Act protects more than 1,600 plant and animal species in the United States and its territories, many of which are successfully recovering. Over the past four-plus decades, the Endangered Species Act has repeatedly demonstrated that when used in its full extent of the law, it does work. The act has been more than 99% successful at preventing extinction. Were it not for the act, scientists have estimated at least 227 species would have likely gone extinct since the law's passage in 1973. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper in the end of this episode <laughs> about the um, ESA, as it's called in short. But let's continue looking at some of the other aspects of this topic. You know, you may be wondering, okay, we get it. Animals are going extinct and loss of habitat is partially the reason. But how exactly do we connect that to the environment? Like, how are we the reason that animals are going extinct? Obviously, sea levels are rising. It's something uh, that's been discussed over and over for a very long time. Uh, oceans are becoming warmer. Longer, more intense droughts uh, threaten crops, wildlife, and freshwater supplies. That's another phenomenon that's observed literally every single year and gets worse and worse. From polar bears in the Arctic to marine turtles off the coast of Africa, our planet's diversity of life is at risk from changing climate. Now, I know that this can get very controversial very quickly because, you know, there's always people who believe and don't believe in climate change. And I'm going to leave that up to you guys. But whether or not you believe in climate change, the fact is that the way humans treat environment poses a fundamental threat to the places, species, and people's livelihoods. So... That's pretty much something that we can't really dispute. It's very hard to dispute. So it doesn't matter if you overall support that trend, call it, or topic, or issue. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you cannot dispute that we as humans have continuously screwed up in the way we treat the environment. It's obvious. We walk around and we see the trash. We walk around and we see animals suffering. So... It's something that we can see. It's, it's not that an article has written about it or news have talked about it. We can personally witness that if we were just to open our eyes slightly. So um, I wanted to actually go ahead and take Biscayne Bay as a case study here. So we can kind of, uh, you know, take a deeper look and see how exactly can we as humans impact our environment in such a bad way that it not only imposes threats to marine life in this case, because we're talking about Biscayne Bay, to native plants, but also to us as humans. Like, we're also harming ourselves. So, um, this is why I wanted to talk about Biscayne Bay. I think that it's very important for me to go over it um, 
because I live in Miami, first of all, but also to bring awareness because Biscayne Bay is a really good example of something happening in our generation, something happening in front of our eyes in a very popular city. We're not talking about some small town in, in Africa or in a develop in, in a you know in some development developing countries. We're talking about modern day Miami, uh, you know, like a melting pot of international people coming here every single day, tourism attractions, everything at its peak. And this is happening right here. This is happening in our very own country, in our very own city. Pollution is killing Biscayne Bay. There's very little time to save it. And it's going to cost a lot of money to rescue it. Recent studies and reports have concluded that the health of Biscayne Bay is at a tipping point. The ecosystem is threatened by nutrient pollution from storm water runoff, sewage pipe breaks, septic tanks, fertilizers, plastic pollution, and other contaminants. So as we see, the problem comes from many different sources. It's not just one thing that needs to get tackled. The pollution is killing seagrass and coral and driving off fish. The bay also is suffering from hypersalinity due to a lack of fresh water. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has reported that the damage is so bad that it soon will be irreversible and it will be impossible to restore the bay to its original state. Biscayne Bay is vital to our economy. Miami-Dade County's annual GDP is over $100 billion. And a large part of it stems from real estate, trade, and tourism, all of which depend on a healthy environment. A study by the Downtown Development Authority reported that um, the taxable value of the downtown's property, including the waterfront, is 39 billion dollars. Trade and tourism produce an estimated 43 billion annually and over 23 million tourists visited the county last year. Hence, one of the key actions of, you know, um, something called 100 Resilient Cities, Resilient 305 plan, is to protect the health of Biscayne Bay and our waterways. In 1974, the Florida legislature passed by Biscayne Bay Aquatic Preserve Act. Later, the Miami-Dade County's Biscayne Bay Management Plan was approved, and years later came the Biscayne Bay Partnership Initiative. These have been all good-faith attempts to protect the bay, but they have been either too slow or shelved. And the difference this time is that we have no time. The situation is urgent. So we can't wait for another legislature to be passed. We can't wait years until something starts moving. We need to act now. The county has created the Biscayne Bay Task Force as its last shot. The task force um, has been reviewing reports and studies related to all the issues that are impacting the bay. What we realize is that it is under assault from many sources. These are serious and complex problems, most of which uh, will require lots of money and a community-wide approach to restoration and recovery. 
We also recognize that we must quickly draft recommendations that will help stabilize the ecosystem in the short term and set a path toward comprehensive recovery and permanent oversight. So if you see illegal dumping, because this is one of the main reasons, one of the most common ways the Biscayne Bay gets polluted. Um, And as I just mentioned, we see a lot of different sources um, that contribute to this pollution and to this very, very big problem. But dumping definitely is um, one of them. So if you definitely see pollution by the bay or um, illegal dumping from construction companies, you can do several things to report them. I'm actually going to link all of this in my blog um, for this episode. So you can take a look directly there for the email, phone number, and contact information to be able to report a case. Um, There are some things that you can keep in mind. If you do see something, try to either take pictures or videos if possible. It will definitely be more helpful in reporting those cases. See if you can uh, spot any identifying characteristics like a boat name, company name, a license plate, anything that can easily help identify the polluters. Um, Be sure to record the time and location very carefully. That can also be of great impact for the case, whether it was rainy or sunny, if the color of the water was different, if there was some weird smell around. All of those are super important things. And obviously, time is especially critical if it's an active spill or a safety hazard. So don't waste time. Make sure that you follow on Instagram accounts that can quickly help you report um, cases. Make sure that, you know, maybe you have the email address saved in your contacts or the phone number that you can quickly report cases like that because they happen all the time. This is not just once, you know in a rare occasion uh, kind of thing. It's something that happens all the time. So um, last year actually turned out to be pretty good for marine life in places like Miami. Stay-at-home orders have meant fewer boats out in the water, and that's meant a safer spring vacation for Miami's aquatic creatures, many of which are coming back to shore. Um, The nonprofit advocacy group Miami Waterkeeper has received alerts and videos from residents of interesting species they've never seen before, including a particularly rare find, the endangered small-tooth sawfish in Biscayne Bay. So that's uh, kind of to show you guys that even if we withdraw just slightly from the bay, we can already start seeing marine life starting to thrive. But just us, you know, like not going in boats in the bay does not solve the problem. As I said, this problem comes from so many different sources and it needs to be tackled on so many different levels. Biscayne National Park is a national treasure and home to part of the third largest barrier reef ecosystem in the world. Biscayne is 95% water and the largest marine park in the national park system created to protect a rare combination of terrestrial, marine, and amphibious life in a tropical setting of great natural beauty for present and future generations. The park also supports tourism and recreational activities such as fishing, diving, snorkeling, boating, So according to the National Park Service report, in 2018, 
450,000 visitors uh, came to Biscayne Bay to spend more than $30 million supporting nearly 400 local jobs and generating more than $42 million for the local economy. So this just goes to show you that it's an essential part of our economy. It's an essential part of creating local jobs. It's an essential part uh, for overall the city of Miami and Miami-Dade County. So it is important for us to keep it alive, not just because of the endangered species, which on its own should already be a reason good enough for us to take actions, but even for our own sake. This is literally going to hurt economy so badly. It's going to hurt local jobs. So for sure, this is going to be an, a great impact, negative impact for us as humans as well. But like I said, just thinking about the endangerment of all of these species and nature should be a reason um, enough for us to take actions. And, you know, if immediate action isn't taken to protect Biscayne Bay's um, marine wildlife, these ecosystems and the economic benefits they support could be at great risk. Conserving Biscayne's marine wildlife and habitat will help protect biodiversity, provide recreational and economic opportunities, build ecosystem resiliency, and strengthen connections between our communities and maritime heritage. We must work together to protect Biscayne Bay before it's too late. Um, as I mentioned, we can't just sit around and wait for another policy to be passed. Uh, those just take time. They take bureaucracy. They take multiple people reviewing and approving them. But we can personally do something today to help uh, support this cause and to help ensure that Biscayne Bay survives. So this brings me to my next point. What can we do personally? to help protect endangered species and their environment. Well, let's start with Biscayne Bay, since this is the example that we've been using. And then we're going to move on to some more generic um, actions we can take. But for Biscayne Bay specifically, one of the biggest things that you can do right now is to stop using fertilizers, uh, specifically between the months between May and October. Right now, it's rainy season, and the rain will most certainly wash away your fertilizers if you live in South Florida, not just in Miami. Um, so those fertilizers are barely even going to touch your lawns. Like they're not even going to get absorbed. More, more, Most likely they're going to get washed away before they even get absorbed. So all those nutrient runoffs, it, that's basically seeping into our groundwater that feeds eventually our bay and it's literally killing it as you just um, heard me very vividly describe. Um, it also doesn't matter how far west you live from the bay, all of South Florida is connected by intricate canal systems. So if the canals are polluted, the bay is going to be polluted as well. So same fertilizer that feeds your lawns and plants also feeds algae in Biscayne Bay, causing algae to bloom. And it's not, you know, anything new to hear that there's a huge algae boom issue in uh, Florida specifically. And Biscayne Bay is not safe from it. So basically what happens is when algae grows too quickly, um, it blocks sunlight from reaching uh, seagrass and basically kills it. So you can actually... 
um, look at satellite photos over time, and you can clearly see in the satellite photos how much of the seagrass has been killed off in the past decade. Uh, and fer fertilizer runoffs is a big reason why Biscayne Bay is in crisis. So please, this is something very simple that could be done on a personal level. Uh, no policies, no government <laughs> needs to get involved. It's something that we as citizens can take upon ourselves to change, to improve on, and to help preserve our bay. But, you know, for all of my, all of my other listeners who don't live in Miami, there's plenty of things that you could do in your areas to help protect um, endangered species. And I'm just going to, you know, briefly mention some of them. Um, the very first thing is learn about them. Research what are the kind of endangered species in your area. Because each area is unique. And like I mentioned, there was the Louisiana black bear that was endangered. And this specifically affected Louisiana. And then there's, you know, other species that are endangered in specific areas. So, and like we mentioned with the gray whale, it, it is endangered in one area and not endangered in another. So it's very important to educate yourself. The very first step, what are the species endangered in my area? The other thing that you could do is you could start contributing to the wildlife habitat. Like I mentioned, humans are vastly responsible for sh significantly shrinking the habitat of many animals and of many different species. So, you know, put a bird feeder in your backyard if you can. Anything little literally can have immense impact. If everyone did something small, the effect of everyone contributing to the cost would be immense rather than relying on select few people to take upon themselves solving this issue, right? Um, another thing we can do anywhere in the world, not just in Miami, minimize the use of pesticides. Um, herbicides and pesticides are hazardous pollutants that can affect wildlife at many levels. Reduce the use of fertilizer. Excess fertilizer will likely wash into streams and rivers, not just Biscayne Bay, but anywhere there's a waterway. That's the case. And it can definitely not only harm animals, but also native plants. Like we mentioned, endangered species are also plants, not only animals. And endangering our local plant species can have terrible impacts on us in the ecosystem. Um, another thing that you could do is reduce your water consumption in your home and your garden. Uh, we spoke about water for an entire episode a couple of episodes ago. So definitely check that out to see how much water we use. And I think it's quite a lot. But if you did a little, you know, a, a couple little changes to reduce your water consumption, this could mean that some animals would have better access to water. So um, it can definitely help their chances of survival. Another very simple act to do on a personal level is to simply slow down driving. A lot of times animals are simply killed because they try to cross a busy street or a highway. And, you know, the truth is we build our roads 
in the middle of their habitat and we cause them to kind of split up and live on both sides of a road for example and very often some animals do have the need to cross they have the instinct that they must cross to do whatever they gotta do so um definitely slowing drive slowing down your driving just being more aware overall when you drive can help reduce road kills pretty much um and then you know like another thing you could do is you could recycle and buy sustainable products uh when you buy recycled paper and sustainable products like forest stewardship council wood products and shade grown uh, grown coffee um all of those can help save rainforests so those are like things that you could definitely start looking out for i think that all of the things that i just mentioned are no great efforts they don't require you to change your life at all um literally all it is is being more aware of your actions that's all it comes down to being more aware of your actions um and it doesn't none of those things require big changes none of those things require you to change who you are but just simply being more aware and doing those little things can help ensure that we endanger less and less animals every year and of course, if you wanted to do something even more, you can always join cleanups, you can always volunteer at different organizations, you can always try to spread the word, educate your family and friends and anyone else that you meet. So, you know, there's a lot of things you can do on a higher level too, but I definitely wanted to point out those little things that really don't take much effort um, in our daily lives, but can have an immense impact. So now, let's finally get to the most important segment of the episode. <laughs> I'm kidding. I think that all of that information I just shared with you is just so important. And this is why I'm not even going to make this conspiracy segment too big. Because I feel like I don't want to overshadow anything that I just mentioned to you. I think all of those things that I mentioned are super valid and important to keep in mind. So I definitely don't want to shed too much attention to conspiracy. But knowing me, you already know that I have to include that. I have to like show you guys the flip side of the story. I can't just go one way and preach one thing. I have to show you the other side and let you decide for yourself in the end of the day. So what we're going to talk about is I'm going to actually share with you three biggest myths about the Endangered Species Act. Now, I'm calling them myths. Some people call them truths, right? So that's very subjective. I consider them myths, but obviously some people believe in them. And they could be a reason why some people decide not to partake in different activities that we consider good for helping endangered species. But let's see what those are. Um, the U.S. Endangered Species Act is a vital piece of legislation that has been called one of the world's most effective environmental laws. But despite four decades of success, the ESA remains poorly understood. So here are three of the biggest myths and misconceptions surrounding the law. The first one, it simply doesn't work. 
And I know what you're about to say. That's bullshit. It works, obviously. Okay, but hear me out. Critics of the ESA are fond of saying that only a handful of species protected by the law have ever recovered enough to be removed from the endangered species list. One of the most recent people to make this claim was U.S. uh, Republican Representative Cynthia Loomis, who said, we have a law where only 1% of the species that have been listed have actually been delisted. To me, that indicates a law that is failing in its ultimate goal, which is to list species, recover them, and then delist them. So I personally think that's a very valid point, right? Like, as I mentioned previously, the entire point of this Endangered Species Act is to go kind of full circle from um, listing those species, making sure that they're protected by law, helping their recovery, and then delisting them, right? So it's a valid point when people say that if if that's not the case, if the ESA is not fulfilling its purpose, then perhaps it's failing as a, as a law. And it is true that only 26 species have ever recovered enough to leave ESA protection. Um, so this can't be disputed. But here's my issue with this point. Um, like I mentioned previously, when we talked about the gray wolf, sometimes delisting species too quickly can endanger them very quickly again because recovering their population takes decades it takes generations and we have to ensure that those species are fully stabilized and that we as humans are going to treat them well once they're back in the wild so this is one reason why it's uh, not as easy to delist species from the ESA Um, You know, definitely, I think this is an argument, a valid argument against ESA. In the end of the day, this is a law that is supposed to put animals back into their natural habitats and to delist them as endangered. So if so little species have ever been delisted, it may seem to some that the law is not fulfilling its purpose, that it's not successful. But... In reality, there's more layers to it. Like I mentioned, this is not an easy project. It's not something that happens overnight. And just because an animal has been, um, you know, an animal population has been stabilized, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's ready to be delisted. So I'm going to, you know, let you judge for yourself. There's always pros and cons to most topics. (laughs) And this is no different. Um, so definitely valid argument, a valid concern to have about this law. And I think that definitely needs um, a little more research on both ends, right? A little more research into why it's taking so long, you know, for a law that's been around for so many decades and it's only delisted 26 species. That's a very small percentage. But on the other hand, also... Perhaps, again, coming back to self-reflecting, are we maybe as humans not ready to delist those animals? Are we just going to start hunting them down and killing them again for no damn reason? Like, those are things that we need to consider on both ends. Um, The second argument, it will take away your land. So some people fear that the federal agents 
will swoop in to take control or the government will seize their homes or lands if an endangered species turns up on their property. So like we mentioned, this act really tries its best to protect um, endangered species. So it will do anything possible to ensure that animals are not harmed. But there's no reason a person would lose their home because an endangered species is on their property. And we know of no situations in which this has occurred, really. It is illegal to harm or kill a threatened or endangered species, whether it is on private or public land. So you can't kill an endangered animal on your private land just for the sake of it. However, if a threatened or endangered species were invading um, you know, a private land, it would not lead to the eviction of a homeowner from his or her property. Uh, projects can, you know, occur on private land, and if it is anticipated that a threatened or endangered species may be harmed, then the landowner can work with local U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services um, biologists to find the best solution. But they will definitely not just get kicked out of their own property. The other argument against the law is that it's an international plot. <laughs> this is my favorite one. The internet is full of conspiracy sites about something called Agenda 21. Some people call it conspiracy, others call it truth. And, you know, in the end of the day, Agenda 21 itself is a fact. It's an agenda. You can literally go online and find the entire agenda. So that's not a conspiracy. The conspiracy is what it stands for. Uh, not if it exists or not, because it does exist. But the conspiracy is what it stands for. And according to those sites, um, you know, ESA is used, among other environmental laws, to destroy property rights. And this will result in people being rounded up and forced into, quote-unquote, sustainable cities. According to one well-distributed um, video, the ESA is an excuse for the federal government to control water, destroy farms, inhibit economic growth, and create circumstances ripe for fraud. The ESA is a tool used by globalists to control Americans through Agenda 21, which is the action plan to implement sustainable development. <laughs> so, again, I'm going to let, let you take this wherever you want. <laughs> this could definitely go in so many ways. Um, so I won't be discussing this point much further. Like I said, Agenda 21 is actually something that exists. It's something that you could look up. Um, I've talked about it in previous episodes a little bit, so you can read it for yourself. You can honestly just find the PDF super quickly and read it for yourself and draw your own conclusions. Like, Don't go on sites and read other people's opinions and, and adopt them, but rather actually go on Agenda 21 and read the entire agenda. So definitely there is something to it of whether or not the governments want to implement certain environmental restrictions to you know control other areas. But like I always say, there's always pros and cons. There's Everything comes at a cost. Like Nothing can be perfect. There's always a give and take. And there will always be two sides of a coin. Any action taken can benefit a group of people and also put others at a disadvantage. That's just the case with almost anything in life. So, so yeah, I'm going to let you judge this one for yourself. Um, I mean, definitely adopting some of those env environmental laws would 
employee restrictions. Um, now, whether, the, whether or not that's good or bad, that's something that would be different for every person. For some people, it would be good, and for others, it would be bad. But, you know, like coming back to Biscayne Bay, um, you know, maybe we do consider some of the restrictions to be a little harsh, but in the end of the day, if Biscayne Bay doesn't survive, not only are we losing, you know, local plants and animal species, we are going to also lose a big chunk of our economy. So it's not them versus us when we talk about endangered species. We are part of that ecosystem. We are going to get harmed as well. So, you know, um, I hope that this episode made you think a little more about how we directly affect the animals in our environment. I think it's important that we learn to share our habitat and to be mindful of all of the living creatures around us. It's our responsibility, essentially, um, to ensure that we preserve all of these wonderful beings. And in the end of the day, their extinction, like I said, can have a terrible effect on the entire ecosystem, including us. We're not above anything. In the end of the day, everything is coming back to us. And even if the smallest bugs go extinct, it will come back to us. So talking about bugs next week we're gonna talk about bees <laughs> and we're gonna see where exactly we stand with saving the bees it's been a topic that we've you know touched base for a lot of years now so what have we done have our action had any impact so far where do we stand with that well stay tuned and until then i'll see you all next week talk to you soon and bye